one of the most basic convictions of the Christian faith, the fundamental tenets of our belief, is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The term Messiah simply means anointed, and it refers to Christ then as God's anointed king. 700 years before Christ came into the world, the prophet Micah prophesied that God would send his king. In Micah chapter 5, from which we read together, Micah says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. The prophet Micah, his name means who is like the Lord. And in a sense, the prophecy of Micah answers the question, who is like the Lord? The opening speech and the closing speech uh, in Micah tells you who the Lord is. He was a farmer, this man, Micah, who came from Moreth Gath, that is, a town, a little town, some 25 miles south of Jerusalem, southwest of Jerusalem, very near to the Philistine city of Gath. And Micah prophesied in the 8th century alongside other prophets like Isaiah. He prophesied, and in this book of prophecy, the prophecy of Micah, really we have three major divisions in Micah, chapters 1 to 2, chapters 3 to 5, and chapters 6 to 7. Each of these sections, 1 to 2, 3 to 5, 6 to 7, begin with a call to hear, hear now, that is to hear the word of the Lord. The first three chapters of Micah consist essentially of oracles, saints, that is, oracles of judgment, judgment that God would bring upon Israel and Judah. And the reasons are not far to see as you read through the prophecy of Micah. First of all, the Lord was incensed because of the greed of the landowners in Israel, people who had a lot of money, a lot of property, but nevertheless were not content. They were gobbling up the property of the poor. Not only then was the rich enriching themselves on the backs of the poor, but indeed the judicial system was rotten at the core. The judges in Israel were dispensing justice to the highest bidder. If you had enough money to pay, the justice system will bend in your favor. And the rot that moral, spiritual corruption in Israel went to the very heart of the nation because even the priests and the prophets were corrupted. They had corrupted the very word of God. They were teaching and saying things that were pleasing to men but were not the word of God. And so the Lord promises that he would judge Israel for its corruption. 
But in chapters 4 and 5, as you will find intermittently through the book, there are sayings of hope. That is, justice and judgment are not the final word of God. There is a ray of hope that God will one day redeem, restore the nation, bring them back to the land, even though they're going to go into exile in 722 to the Assyrians, in 586 to the Babylonians, God would bring them back in 539 BC under Cyrus the Great. And you see something of this in chapter 4, beginning in chapter 4, when the writer talks about God's temple being established in Jerusalem and nations will be streaming into Jerusalem. And there is this incipient question, a question that demands an answer. But how is God going to recover his people and restore them? And chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, answers that question. That God is going to raise up from Judah. He's going to raise up a ruler. And we want to understand that the ruler identified in verse 2 is really a reference to a king. And this ruler is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born, Michael the prophet saw the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may wonder, how do we know that this is a reference to Jesus Christ? Well, it is interesting then that in the New Testament book, in the Gospel of Matthew, when the wise men had come from the east searching for the child whose star they had seen, and they came to Jerusalem, and they spoke of a king who was to be born in Israel, Herod was quite disturbed. And when he had called the scribes, And the chief priest, he asked them, where has it been predicted that this Messiah was to be born? And what did they do? How how did they respond? We know that they responded by quoting Micah 5 verse 2, which I read earlier. What did they say to Herod? So they said to him in Matthew 2, 5 and 6, in answer to his question, where the Messiah is to be born, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah then provides a fascinating glimpse, 700 years, a fascinating glimpse of Jesus. And what I want us to reflect upon today is, first of all, God's messianic king. I want us to look at three glimpses that are presented to us here in Micah 5 verse 2 of the Messiah, the messianic king. I want us to consider first his humanity. And secondly, I want to consider his eternality. And finally, I want to consider his activity. Well, first then, from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 and following, we see the humanity of the messianic king. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel. After reminding them of the siege and the captivity in verse 1, 
there is this ray of hope in verse 2. But you see this sharp contrast with what has taken place in verse 1. You're going to go in exile, the Lord is saying. You're going to be struck. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler. What does the Lord do? Well, here through the prophet, the Lord first of all identifies the earthly location of the birth of this ruler. He shall come from Bethlehem, a term which means the house of bread. Ephratha is the district which means fruitful. A ruler, God is going to raise up from Bethlehem a ruler to lead his people, to do great things on behalf of his people. He would not come from, from Jerusalem, the center of their universe, where the movers and shakers gathered to direct the affairs of Israel. No, he would come from Bethlehem, just a little bit south of Jerusalem. And our Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Not in Jerusalem, close to, but not in Jerusalem. This was a little place, a place of little statue. Very few people would think of Bethlehem in the normal course of events. And so the question is, why is the Messiah to arise from this relatively insignificant place? Well, if you know a little of biblical history, you will know that David, the greatest king of Israel, was born in Bethlehem. And Micah, by identifying Bethlehem as the birthplace of the messianic king, that is Jesus Christ, he is making a direct connection between Jesus Christ, the ruler whom God will raise up, and David. And what he intends us to understand is that this ruler who is going to raise up from Bethlehem is indeed the son of David. The son of David. Now you may ask me why must he connect the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to David? It is because God had promised that he would give to the descendant, to the seed of David, an everlasting kingdom. God had promised that he was going to raise In 2 Samuel 7, he was going to raise up a king from the loins of David. You know, David had gone to the Lord and he had said to Nathan the prophet, I I, I want to build the Lord a house. I want to build the Lord a house. And the Lord says, you want to build me a house? I am going to build you a house. I'm going to give you an everlasting dynasty. I'm going to raise up from you, David, a king whose kingdom will be everlasting. And to some extent, God raised up a great king from David, who was Solomon. But Solomon died. And those kings who came from David, they eventually died. And so you see, the prophecy was looking forward to a greater king, a greater David, who would have an everlasting kingdom. And there was within Israel then an expectation that there would come a king, and the way they would know he's a king it is because he comes from David. So when you get to the New Testament, and you get to the book of 
Matthew. Matthew's writing largely to a Jewish audience, and he wishes to convince them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. What does he do? If you go back to Matthew and the first chapter of Matthew, it is a very interesting genealogy. I know that we are not very often enthralled by genealogies, but this is a genealogy worth reading. I want you to understand how Matthew begins the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't begin by connecting Jesus even to Adam. He doesn't begin by connecting Jesus even to Abraham. Look at how he begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And there are some ten times in this gospel of Matthew that he will identify Jesus Christ as the son of David. Why? Because it matters which family you came from. You know, today we judge people very largely by how much money they have, what university they went to, and how many degrees are behind their names. But in the Jewish society, by and large, the most important question was, who's your father? What tribe do you come from? That was the question. And so when Matthew goes about saying Jesus is the Messiah, the Jews will be asking, tell me, who is his father? And that is why Matthew begins by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Because he wants us to know that this Messiah who is coming is the one who God had predicted who would come from David. You see, his humanity, he arises from the stock and from the root of Jesse. He is the messianic king linked to David. And throughout this gospel of Matthew, you will, you will hear over and over the, the saying, Jesus Son of David. You see it in the two blind men, for example, in chapter 9, or you find it later on in chapter 20, these blind men who are crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. So we see first his humanity. He comes from this little town. He's born as a man, and he comes as the messianic king. He comes from the stock of David. We see then his humanity in that he's born in Bethlehem and he is a descendant of David. He is the Davidic king. But this passage not only points us to the humanity of the, of the messianic king, it points us to his eternality. For let us look at how Micah continues to describe this king, this ruler who is to come. And now we see the second vignette, the second small portrait of this Messiah. He says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And by the way, let me just pause to point out that in the original, in the Hebrew, uh, this one shall come to me, is emphatic. To me, he shall come. Meaning he will come to do my bidding. He will come to fulfill my purpose. He will come to do my will. Out of this little place of Bethlehem, one shall come to me, a ruler. He will come for me. Notice how he goes on to describe him further. And he says of him, whose 
goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. I would submit to you then that though this ruler is truly human, he comes from Bethlehem and he comes from the line of David. He is the promised Messiah, a real man. Micah sees him as more than a man. Because he says the one who is to be born in Bethlehem existed before his birth in Bethlehem. I don't know if you understand that. Who's going forth have been of old, even from everlasting. He cannot refer to Solomon. He cannot refer to Hezekiah or any of the kings of Judah. Because they've not been from of old. This term, from everlasting, olam, is used in various contexts in the Old Testament, but is used as a reference to God and God's eternal nature. We read, for instance, that God is from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And so the, the Messiah who is to come from David, not only is he human, but he's eternal. It's another way of saying he's God. The one who is to be born in Bethlehem is none other than the eternal Son of God. And that's the mystery. We, in more technical language, speak about the hypostatic union, the, the joining of humanity and divinity in Christ, that Christ possesses two natures. He was fully God and, and fully man, undivided. And yet... This great mystery is what played out in Bethlehem. God became a man. He did not lose an iota of his divine nature. But he was fully man and fully God. And he says, his going forth, his movements have been of old. The one who comes from Bethlehem, his movements have been from of old, even from eternity. He existed as the eternal God. We need to understand that the, the one who has come to save us is eternal. And this must not strike us as being unusual. Because Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, points out that this one to come would be eternal. Unto us, he says, a son is born. This one whom he saw coming, he says, he shall be called the everlasting father in Isaiah 9 verse 6. He shall be called the father of eternity, the one who lives. You see, understanding that Jesus Christ was not merely fully man, but the eternal God is essential. You cannot have a right conception of Christ if you see him as merely man. This was the massive error that was made by Arius in the 4th century. When Arius said that Jesus Christ was the first created spiritual being. And Athanasius and the church then, the Orthodox Church, stood up. And in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Arius was condemned. Because they had texts like this. His going forth has been of old even from everlasting. He existed before he was born. It might appear paradoxical, but it is nevertheless true. 
this language is used. You shall call his name Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And when you come to the New Testament, you still see that the New Testament insists that the one who was born in Bethlehem is eternal. John begins his gospel in an arresting manner. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, when the world came into being, the Lord, who he described as the Word, was already in existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But he was existing before the beginning of time. In John chapter 8, Jesus, in his contention with the Jews, could say, before Abraham came into existence, I am. The verbal tenses here are essential. Before Abraham was, before Abraham lived, Jesus says, I am. And you know, they would have killed the Lord Jesus because of that. Because they understood that he was claiming to be the eternal God. They're saying, but, but you, you, we know where you're born. You're just 30 years of old. You're a young man. And you're coming to tell us that before Abraham, who had be, died centuries ago, you're telling us that you were before him. Before Abraham was, I am. Our Lord Jesus Christ affirmed his eternal nature. He backs up the claim made by Michael. We find in Colossians chapter 1, in that marvelous section where Paul extols the greatness of Jesus Christ, the one whom he views as the creator of all things, the firstborn, meaning the chief, the one who is supreme over all things. Israel, he says, is my firstborn, but firstborn protocol does not mean first in existence. Israel was not the first nation in existence, but God called them the firstborn, meaning the chief of the nations to him. And in that section where the writer speaks of Christ, Paul says, and he is before all things, and in him all things Consists, cohere, all things are held together in Christ. It is, it is not gravity that binds the universe together. It is Christ in him, all things cohere, but he's before all things. You see, the writer then insists that the one who is from Bethlehem, God will call in the future someone who will do a marvelous work for Israel. He shall come from Bethlehem, but the one who comes from Bethlehem, his goings have been of old from everlasting. He is the eternal God. We've looked then at two things. First, his humanity. He is man, a descendant of David. But he is God eternal because he was in existence from of old from eternity. But Micah goes on to give us another fascinating picture of this king whom God would raise up to deliver his people. He goes on to say, regarding this one, let me show you something of his activity. I've talked about his nature. He will be the son of David. He will be man, and he will be the eternal God. But let me talk about his activity. Let me show you something of his mission. Let me point out something of his agenda. 
And that is what you find in verse 4. Again, he tells them that, that, that this one who will come, will come when she, in verse, four, in verse 3, has given birth. The one who is in labor has given birth. We take this as a reference to Mary. Then he will gather his people. But in verse 4, we see a threefold statement about the activity of this messianic king, the one who comes from Bethlehem. And notice he begins and he says, and he shall stand. That's the first activity that he lists of this great ruler who will come from Bethlehem. He shall stand. Calvin, the great commentator, uh, interprets this to mean that he will stand, refer to his perseverance. But we believe that it might be even more accurate to refer and to understand standing as a reference to his rule. In other words, when he says he shall stand, it means and the one who is coming from Bethlehem, the one whose goings have been of old, he shall stand. In other words, he shall reign. And he shall reign as the immovable king. There are no earthly powers that can force him from office. There is no scandal that can be uncovered that will cause him to resign. There are no earthly powers that can depose him. Recently we heard in Zimbabwe how Mugabe, who had been there for almost 40 years, in a silent coup was removed. But you see, there are no earthly military powers who can take Christ down, who can force this king to resign. He shall stand. He shall reign. He shall reign because he has a firm and an immovable kingdom. You see, all the kings who have risen up from Judah, they had perished. But this king is coming and he shall stand. He shall stand through the ages and through the aeons of time. He shall stand. And when men have fallen and kingdoms have failed, he shall still be standing. He shall stand. The second aspect of his activity, of his work, is that the writer says, and he shall shepherd his flock. The New King James, and I suspect the Old King James, translates us in verse 4, and he shall stand and feed his flock. But the term literally means he shall shepherd. So the one to come will be the great king who shall reign, but the one who, who is to come will be a shepherd of his flock. David was a shepherd of Israel. The language of shepherding was the language used of a king because a king's task was to provide for his people. And Micah says that this one who is coming from Bethlehem will be the shepherd king. It will be his task to provide, to protect, to lead, to guide, essentially to care for his flock. Lord says, I'm going to raise up a true shepherd, a shepherd king who shall be there to gather my people who are scattered, to deliver them from their enemies, and to protect them. David protected his sheep from lions and bears, 
But I will raise up, the Lord is saying, a shepherd who will protect from all circumstances and from all enemies. And this one shall succeed in his office as shepherd, the shepherd king. And he gives us two phrases to explain why this shepherd will be invincible and will never fail in his office of caring for, protecting his sheep. He says in verse 4, he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. The one whom God will give to shepherd his people will be endued with divine power. He will stand in the strength. He will receive the strength of the Lord. He will have almighty power with which to protect and to care for his sheep. It's the second phrase explaining why he will shepherd his people successfully is that he says not only will he he shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, but in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. In other words, this one will shepherd them, will care for them, and he will do so in the majesty, in the regal authority and the brilliance and the glory of God himself. The name of God referring to the character of God. What is he saying in other words? He's saying this shepherd king whom God will raise up will be a great shepherd who cannot fail because he has the strength, the authority, and the glory or majesty of God himself. And the result of this shepherding of his sheep is that they shall be secure. This is what you find in verse 4 when it says that he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall abide. In other words, they shall be secure. Why? Because for now he shall be great to the end of the earth, because he will have everlasting dominion, everlasting universal power. The third task of this shepherd king, the first is to stand, to reign. The second, he says, is to shepherd, to provide, to protect, to care for, to guide. Well, the third task is found in verse 5, and this one shall be peace. He shall bring peace. He shall destroy his enemies. Here, literally, it refers to the Assyrians. But, but the writer intends a greater deliverance. He will secure peace. That wholeness, that completeness. And the peace that he will secure is not just political peace, but spiritual peace. Because he will deal decisively once and for all with sin. He'll remove, as one writer says, the corruptive influence. He will take away that which is contradictory and opposing to God. This shepherd will bring peace not only between men and men, but between God and man. So we've looked at this Davidic messianic king. We have looked at his humanity. We have looked at his eternality. We have looked at his activity, his threefold activity. He shall stand, he shall reign, he shall shepherd, and he shall be peace. When we read a passage like this, there are a number of things that should occur. I want to suggest at first that you and I, we should worship God for salvation. Because salvation from first to last is the work of God and God alone. Someone said this, is, this generation is the do-it-yourself 
generation. Yeah, and I think that is, in a sense, right on. You know, YouTube is a wonderful instrument in this regard. Even if you are clueless, YouTube can turn you instantaneously into an expert. You, you can become Mrs. Fix-It overnight. You may never ever think that you could possibly fix drywall in your house. But you go and you watch one of those videos on YouTube, you can do a better job than guys, it seems, who have been doing that for 50, 60 years. You can learn how to paint and paint like an expert. You can learn how to decorate. You can, you, you can learn almost everything on YouTube. Well, there are a few things apparently we can't learn on YouTube. One of them is, of course, coming early to church. And that is not subtweeting, subtweeting anybody, so... You can almost learn anything. You can do everything on your own. And we live in a generation that says, you can do it. You can fix it. You can make it better. But Micah reminds us that regarding the relationship with God, we cannot fix it. God must intervene. God must do something to ransom, to redeem, to deliver us. You see, we are sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So the Lord must seek for us. The Lord must bring us to himself. And Micah says, God is going to raise up a great shepherd of the sheep who is going to deliver his sheep, who is going to search. You and I must praise God because salvation is the work of God. And we, at Christmas, we delight in this revelation that God has done something to save man. We must praise him for salvation because one day when we see him, we're going to join that throng in heaven. And we're going to say as we hear in Revelation 7, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we're going to be saying amen and blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Can you imagine? There could have been no Christmas. Our year could begin the same way and end the same way. No celebration, no reason for dancing, no reason for singing, no reason for joy. Because we are still in darkness, we are still under sin. But our God in his infinite mercy and grace reached out to save us. Salvation is never man seeking God. It is always God seeking man. And if you are saved, if you have been found by him, you must say salvation be to our God and to him who sits on the throne. But not only must you praise the Lord for salvation, you must rejoice because he has raised up a true king. He has raised up his king, his anointed savior. And this one is a sovereign savior, a sovereign king. One of the most distressing pictures is traveling in some countries, in particular in the capital city. We were going through one of these years ago and greatly upset when we're driving out of the capital to the countryside and we stopped at a stoplight and there were little children dressed in rags swollen stomachs, dried parched lips, who were dodging cars 
just to beg some money, a few change, a few scraps of food. These children were abandoned and left on their own. But you and I are not abandoned, defenseless children. We have a great king, a great king who God has raised up for us. Micah declares, he shall stand. He shall stand to reign over the church and over the world. He shall stand for you. And you need to know that the Christ who came into the world is still standing today. He is still reigning. He shall stand. When the enemy comes against you, you need to know that he shall stand. When tongues rise up to condemn you, He shall stand to defend you because no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that raises itself in judgment, he will condemn. He shall stand. And when the winds of this life are blowing hard against you and the ground beneath you is shaking and shifting, he shall stand and he shall say, peace be still. And when you are Bombarded by the troubles and trials. He shall stand and he shall say, I am your rock and your defense. I am your shield and your buckler. He shall stand. Job could say, in the midst of his sufferings, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand upon the earth in the latter days. And John in Revelation says in chapter 14, and I saw the lambs standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 who had been sealed. He shall stand. You're never alone. God has raised up his king who stands. He stands for you and with you. When all else have abandoned you, you're never alone. You have God's king. You have God's champion. You have heaven's champion standing on your side. And so when mountains are before you, he shall stand and flatten them. He shall stand. You need to know that the champion that God was raised up is not only the sovereign king, he's the shepherd king. It is he who leads you through this life. It is he who protects you. It is he who cares for you. And he shepherds you in the strength that God gives. You need to recognize, my dear friends, that God has given to you a shepherd and a bishop of your soul. That God has given one to care for you, for your interest, for your good, for your welfare. And he cannot fail because he exercises his role as shepherd king in the strength and in the authority and in the majesty and the power of God himself. And this shepherd, this shepherd king, is the one who exercises his care of us by giving us the greatest gift. Because John tells us in John 10, the good shepherd 
lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know how Christ cared for you? Not just by doling out to you things you need. He came and he bled and he died on the cross. He laid down his life. He died that you and I, that we may live. That's the care. That's the love of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this means that you and I have a responsibility to our shepherd, to our great king. The first thing that we must do is what the psalmist says. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. Because God has raised up a shepherd, you and I must seek to be reconciled to him, to be on good terms with our king. You must seek to know him, you must seek to submit to him. Kiss the son, welcome him, embrace him as your king. Surrender and submit to him, believe in him and follow him. If you ask Micah, what must we do in response to our great God and our great king? In chapter 4, three times, he says, walk. You're to walk in the name of the Lord, meaning that you are to walk in obedience. You're to live in obedience to your great king. Christ is the great king. We are to obey him. And you must trust him because he's God's champion. He's God's king. The story is told of a, of a hunter in the times of the pioneer in northern Canada. He came to a, a pond, and he didn't know how deep it was, did not know how thick the ice was, or whether it could carry his weight. And so he decided that he was going to take the safest route. He went down on all fours and began to crawl on his stomach across the ice. And suddenly behind him came a carriage driven by two massive steeds or horses. A carriage filled with people. And the carriage raced across the ice and disappeared in the distance. Because you see, those who were in the carriage and those who drove it trusted that the ice could bear their weight. And you must know that you have God's king who is able to bear the weight of the entire universe. He can bear the weight of your life because he's the eternal God. He is self-sufficient himself. Because he's eternal, he does not depend upon anything and therefore you can trust him because he is self-sufficient. He's sufficient for himself and sufficient for you. You must put your whole weight upon him. The rest of chapter 5 of Micah shows you that God will destroy every false trust. Those who trust in military strength and those who trust in idols, those who trust in fortified cities. The Lord will destroy those who trust in their idols and trust in the occultic practice. You see, only this king is the basis of our trust. May God help you that you would receive Jesus Christ, the one who comes from Bethlehem, but his goings have been of old from everlasting. He is the sovereign king and he is the shepherd king. May God move you to trust in him for all of life, that he may be the basis of all your trust, of all your confidence, that you may rest the full weight of your faith and life upon Christ, God's king for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Oh, Father, we praise you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that you have raised up for yourself your King. And we praise you that Jesus Christ has done it all. He has come and gathered his people. As our shepherd, he has paid for our sins. We thank you, O Lord Christ, O Lord Savior, for the work of restoring us to the favor of God and bringing us into harmony with him. We thank you, Savior, for your blood that was shed, the peace you have achieved. And we thank you that our our lives are secure because they are hidden with you in God. And so we praise you for salvation. We praise you that one day you will come again and stand on this earth and we shall see you and be with you. Grant that at this season we may truly rejoice in having God's ruler, God's king, as our king and our savior for his name's sake. Amen.